Good evening and welcome. I'm Diane Meyerhoff, host for tonight's candidate forum for state representative in Chittenden District 6-4 in Burlington. Tonight's show is being aired live on Channel 17 and streamed live on the Channel 17 website. We welcome your comments and questions. Please join the conversation at 862-3966. Candidates joining me tonight are Selena Colburn and Brian Chena, both incumbents. And I believe you are progressive slash Dems, is that right? Okay, progressive slash Dems. Um, since the candidates are running unopposed, they are both, um, they are both representing District 6-4. We're gonna conduct this more as a forum than as a debate. Um, however, each candidate will make an opening statement and then we'll discuss topics of interest to voters. So, Selena, would you like to start off? Sure. I'm Selena Colburn and I was uh, born and mostly raised in Burlington, actually not, not far at all from the neighborhood that I currently represent. Um, prior to being a legislator, I was a two-term city councilor and um, also work as a librarian at the University of Vermont and am a parent to two kids at Edmonds Middle School. And I uh, have been running and working at the state level, um, trying to further some of the work that I did at the city level, but really when I have been thinking a lot about what is it that I'm really trying to do here, and it's to create a Vermont where more people are welcome and more people are thriving. Really where everyone is welcome and everyone is thriving. And I'm excited to talk more about some of the ways I think we can do that tonight. Super, great, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Brian. Yeah, so my name is Brian Chena. I've lived in Burlington for 20 years. Um, I've lived in the Old North End for 19 of those 20 years in the same house actually. And uh, I've uh, been involved in the community in Burlington throughout my time in many different ways. I used to be a school board member representing the, the Central District, which is the Old North End in downtown. Um, I, I was, uh, the co-chair of Pride Vermont during the time of civil unions in Vermont, so that was the year 2000 to 2003. I've been an organizer and activist for many other causes, um, and probably uh, one of the biggest things that, I, that I've done that I still do is I co-founded a group called Is Good, Isham Street Gardening and Other Optimistic Doings, uh, and what we do is we do community gardening. Uh, we try to change the social environment by making the physical environment more beautiful, and we've had a lot of success in reducing crime rates using this method even though that wasn't our original intention. So um, I'm, ru I'm running for, to be state rep representative um, for many reasons, and at the core of my campaign um, is that I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker in Burlington for the, for the 20 years that I've been here. I have a private practice downtown. I'm a, a part-time crisis clinician for the Howard Center. So I see some of the um, greatest challenges facing society um, in the work that I do on a daily basis. And I work within, mostly with individuals and with families. And um, what I recognize as a social worker is that I can make a huge difference on the individual and family level working with people, but that there's social structures and policy and law that's shaping the conditions that drive the problems that people have. And that I could spend my whole life working with people to try to change things on the ground level, but that we also need to be fighting at, the, at the, sort of the top of the pyramid and we need to be changing social structure and social policy. So as a state representative, I seek to sort of take what I gain on a daily basis, 
most of the year as a social worker on the ground level and bring that experience to the policy level as well as try to find ways to create more opportunities for people to be engaged in the decisions that affect their lives. Great, thank you both. And I should just ask you, uh, this district, do you consider this, I think you said, you said the old north end and downtown, is that kind of how this, this shapes out your district? Our districts in Burlington do not align with the city wards and districts. So, <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, no, yeah, so I live in the old north end part of our legislative district, yep. but it also includes um, the east end, UVM, the hospital, kind of dips down into Winooski, over to Riverside Ave, and then sort of cuts into um, the eastern tip of the old north end. So oh, okay. it's a pretty, okay. so it's pretty a good diverse. Walk when you're going door to door. <laughs> it's a beautiful walk. It's a beautiful and walk. we get to you know see a wide range of, of little micro neighborhoods that are yeah. connected and um, and it, you know, if you want to just compare it to city wards, that it's a little piece of Ward Two, which is the area I live in. Then Ward One, it's most of Ward One, which is where Selena lives. And then this like little sliver of Ward Eight and Six. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's very, okay. very small. Okay. Of All right. So of course, if you're, if you, if the folks watching don't know which district in, they can always go online and find out. They're all very well delineated on maps on the um, legislative website. So I'll just say that. But I sort of just said Burlington, just people have a context of where you're at. Uh, so we talked a little bit about um, topics of interest, and um, both of you mentioned that um, healthcare was something that was important to you. And you know, everyone's concerned about healthcare spending. Um, you know, how do we reduce? How do we uh, keep that spending down, but still? Make maintain our um, one of the healthiest states in the nation, apparently. So that sounds pretty good. Um, which of you would like to start? I'm going to let Brian start because okay. he serves on the House Health Care Committee. Oh, so um, okay, I think it makes sense okay. for him to start there. So I'm on the House Health Care Committee, and I was, appoint I was appointed to the House Health Care Committee because I'm a health care provider, so I can bring sort of that experience to the table. And um, in, in health care policy right now, um, one of the biggest things that we've been dealing with is the cost of health care. And there's guidelines coming down from the federal level from Medicare that's shaping health care policy in terms of cost containment. And there's a new model of payment for providers called the, the um, all-payer model or accountable care organizations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it um, because I'd, I'd rather talk to people one-on-one -on -one about it. It's very complicated. and the if I had to summarize, what it does is it asks providers to look out for the health of the populations. And then, so providers are going to get paid for taking care of, of they're going to get paid a flat fee for covering all the health care needs of people um, over time. It's being trans, uh, phased in slowly, but as part of that flat fee, they're supposed to do more than just office visits, more, um, more time and energy spent on follow-up. And so the idea is that over time, if providers are investing their energy into the health of entire populations, then people will be healthier and it will cost us less. And I think there's some benefits to that model and some challenges. I will say that um, when I think about the big picture, um, that I do think we need to invest more in prevention and in follow-up, uh, but I think there's greater, um, there's a, there's, we can go further than the accountable care organizations. And once they start to work and bring costs more into check, and hopefully we can continue to invest in healthcare by working towards healthcare as a public good. And one step would be universal primary care. It, there was a bill that I was the lead sponsor on, Selena was a co-sponsor as well as many others. And that bill 
um, did pass out of the Senate into the House and it passed out of the Health Care Committee and didn't make it through appropriations in time. But I think the idea is not dead and really the vision would be to take steps towards a health care system where we are investing in prevention, um, investing in treatment, and really the more we invest in primary care, the more we save down the road. because. What we have now is a system where people aren't going to the doctor because they're afraid of co-payments or deductibles and then they get very sick and they end up in the emergency room and then it's very expensive. And so I could go on, but I would like to give you some time to talk about this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the um, things that come to mind to me are very similar to what Brian has talked about, really making sure that we're um, investing in preventative care, in holistic care um, that kind of treats the whole person to avoid some of those really acute crisis healthcare costs down the road for individuals and for the system at large and all of us who are funding it in one way or another. I also think um, universal primary care is something I really support and even just expanded access to primary care. Um, and I see that on an issue by issue basis. I know we're going to talk maybe about the opioid crisis in a little mm -hmm. bit and that's um, a perfect example of an issue where more access to primary care could really help us turn the corner. And then I also think, to me, part of more access to primary care looks at some of those real low barrier models to accessing primary care settings. So the community health centers in Burlington, I think, are an amazing example of um, a system that just really is is helping low-income people, is providing a whole range of interconnected services and really meeting people where they are. And so more of that, I think, is where we need to be. I also will say I'm, I think ultimately the answer is for us to be enacting a single-payer healthcare system. I'm someone who still really believes in that, um, but we have a you know legislative and governance process that's incremental. So things like universal primary care, even like expanded primary care access um, are increments, I think, on the way to getting us there. And, and how far are we in terms of, I'll use the word universal, preventive care or primary care, how far are we? Are we a long ways from that right now? I mean, you, you're on the front lines of this, so you're seeing this. Do we have a long way to go or are we close? I don't. I don't think we have a long way to go. If, I think if, if we had the will to do it, that we could create, a, we could improve access to primary care and expand it to provide universal coverage. There would need to be an upfront investment, and I think that's the greatest barrier: is the an upfront investment um, and how you finance it. Um, and we could talk more about like some possible ways to do that later. Um, I, I was wondering if I could give an example of um, just yeah. to illustrate this because as a, as a crisis clinician I actually see um, some of the most challenging situations play out in the emergency room and um, you know when you we talk about health care sometimes people think of it very narrowly but I actually think health care is more than just going to the doctor and housing is health care and an example I'll give that when I, when I'm working in the crisis service, every night there are people who are homeless who end up in the emergency room because of a variety of challenges that are related to being homeless. Um, and if we 
we spend over a thousand dollars a night. I think it might even be up to fifteen hundred dollars for that one night in the emergency room. So if someone goes to the emergency room three or four times in a month, we're talking about up to maybe six grand, if not more, that has been spent. And that's money that our system is just paying because people aren't co don't have coverage, or if they do and they have Medicaid, Medicaid's paying. Um, if we provided someone with housing for a month, how much would that cost? And if we provided services wrapped around that housing, how much would it cost? It might cost one night in the emergency room for a whole month. So if we, ha if we invested more in a housing first approach to dealing with, with homelessness, then we would save a tremendous amount of money. The system would save a tremendous amount of money. And so there's little changes like that that we could make over time that would save money because we're investing, we're viewing healthcare as an investment versus a cost. I think that's an example of um, that low barrier approach where we, our system is sort of flipped, right? Like there are um, so many criterias that people need to meet in most cases to access subsidized or low income housing. You have to, there's often sobriety requirements. There's, um, you need to not have a, a criminal justice, history of criminal justice system interactions. Um, if we flip that model and stabilize people's housing, uh, the, you know, there, there's tons of evidence that really good things happen when that's the case. Okay, so um, let's talk about the opioid mm -hmm. epidemic at the same time since they, they yeah. kind of go together and, and maybe some of the same solutions make sense for that too, I'll say. Um, you know, are we are we making progress? There was something uh, in the paper today that that there's less uh, opioids being prescribed at in Vermont. Um, so, you know, how are how are we doing? Um, I give us a pretty mixed report card. I think um, you know Vermont has enacted some very compassionate measures and a system that's been emulated around the country for some good reasons. I also think um, we continue to have an increase in fatal overdoses each year for the last three years and um, we somehow have declared victory on that uh, by saying that we've slowed down the rate of increase in overdoses and that that's an example to me of pretty skewed logic. I don't think that's acceptable. Um, and so where I have seen us falling down in my work, this is this is really the, the issue that made me feel like it made sense to run at the state level um, after trying to work on this issue. As a city councilor here in Burlington, is that I think we need to continue expanding access to treatment really on demand and to harm reduction approaches because these are the things that are proven again and again to save lives. And so, um, in fact, the evidence on um, controlling prescribing practices and monitoring prescribing practices is somewhat mixed in whether or not it really um, helps reduce substance use disorder. But the evidence on things like uh, syringe exchange programs, um, like interim buprenorphine access, which we're starting to see a much bigger push for locally. There's some really good work happening here in Burlington around that. Um, we need to expand those things. And, and what I've seen, I feel like, too often is um, kind of a box checking approach where we do a little bit of those things and we say, great, we're doing uh, syringe exchange. It's open four hours a week, um, you know, one day a week. Or we're, we're giving out Narcan, but you only get one dose. Um, and that's it, because we don't want you to 
feel like you should use it again and again, which is, you know, kind of the point of Narcan is that it's there for you when you need it. So I think I think with the underlying thing that I see is that we still have a lot of stigma and a lot of misunderstanding to address um, in our state, in our system, and that some of that stigma is informing even even some of our best work and approaches where we're we're making it available, but we still have judgments about how much or how quickly people should be able to access it. Brian, your thoughts on it? Yeah. So. Um, when I think about you know what we're doing, I think that like Selena said, we're do we're there's some improvements in how policy has changed and some best practices that are being looked at and slowly implemented. But I don't think we're doing enough. We're not keeping up with it, and there's a lot more we can be doing. And it was frustrating, honestly, to as a provider of healthcare to be advocating for what what people need and to be told by members of the administration that they need two years to get a better assessment of what's going on before they're going to support us in taking legislation off the walls to work on. Selena proposed bills, I proposed bills, other people proposed a variety of bills with different angles, um, not repetitive, and my hope was that they would all be merged into some sort of omnibus opiate bill, you know, and, you know, there were members of the governor's administration who pulled me aside and said these are good ideas but we're not ready yet and I think we're 20 years behind when I started working in Burlington 20 years ago I was an outreach worker working with youth on Church Street who were addicted to heroin and who were dying and who were getting pulled into sex trafficking and it's 10 20 times worse now and so we're really behind on this uh, in a solution one specific idea that wouldn't be very hard to, to implement would be a centralized intake in the state for rapid response for for uh, outpatient treatment. So right now, if you you can go to your, we have this thing called the hub and spoke model where you can go to a primary care office and get medication um, tr medication assisted treatment, but you don't necessarily get the mental health, the psychotherapy, and the social work that you need. So people can go on a medicine, but and that helps tremendously. But there's so much driving addiction and driving the problems that isn't getting addressed. And so if we had a way that a doctor's office or a person could call a central number either in each county or in the state and say, I'm ready for help and have an appointment that day or the next day with a provider, it would help tremendously. It would fill a gap. And that was one of the things I proposed and various professional organizations around the state supported the idea and were willing to reach out to their members. And as a psychotherapist, I was thinking, yeah, I could make a, a slot or two a week for this. And many people were willing to do this. We had a whole you know, army of providers willing to step up, and we were told, no, we need two years to see what's going on before we'll take action. So that's just one example of some of the solutions we can create or we can like implement using the resources we already have to respond to this crisis quicker. Okay, let's, um, let's switch gears. We'll talk about the economy. Um, according to Forbes magazine, uh, Vermont's economy, economic outlook is projected to be second worst in the U.S. over the next five years, while income growth is expected to lag behind. Do you agree with this assessment? What's your plan of action to strengthen the, uh, the economy um, and generate a sustainable economy? And would you like to start, Selena? Sure. Um, so I tried to look at the Forbes, yeah, okay. uh, the Forbes study or uh, and there, it's pretty short on methodology. Mm -hmm. So okay. I'm a librarian, um, and it's hard for okay. me to know exactly what those projections okay. are based on. Mm -hmm. um, but I, 
I did spend a little time with a report that our state auditor uh, produced this summer, Doug Hoffer, really looking at economic development issues in our state. And in fact, he actually addresses the Forbes study. Okay, um, good. Doug is pretty good at poking holes in some of the notions that Vermont is not a business-friendly climate or, uh, or um, just a doesn't have a healthy economy. And he found that um, by a number of measures, including just income growth, that um, Vermont actually, we're doing you know better than a number of the states in the, that made the top 10 in the Forbes study. So I think, you know, yeah. gotta, gotta look at the it. data. Um, that said, um, and so really the basis of Doug's report that I thought was very interesting was looking at um, peer-reviewed studies and just trying to understand the evidence on what really works for economic development. You know, we're spending $14 million a year in this state on things like marketing and tax incentives and kind of um, very selective job training kinds of programs. And there's not a lot of evidence in um, in research that, that this is necessarily creating new growth, new wealth, um, new economic development. That's, it, we, we, there's some evidence that we may be throwing some money at growth that would have happened either way. Um, by contrast, there are a number of strategies that have been shown to stimulate economic development. And those things do include things like technical assistance and financial help to businesses, more broadly um, distributed workforce development work and, and training, um, but also things like affordable housing, like childcare, like energy efficiency, like broadband access. So I really recommend that people take a look at this study. It's, it was really, really um, eye-opening to read. I, I would say, you know, some of the strategies that I and a number of other legislators supported, um, especially after hearing about this, what the governor often calls an affordability crisis, were things like trying to raise basic wages um, in the state, which has been shown to be a strong economic development tool, a $15 an hour minimum wage, ensuring paid family leave. Um, so if, if part of what we're trying to do is keep, keep people in the state and bring people in the state, I think those things are really important. And I think having a strong public education system is really important too. And I'm, I'm worried, have been worried in my time in the legislature about the kind of continued threats to the public education system, so. Okay, good, maybe we'll talk about that next. Do you wanna talk yeah. about the economy? First, I wanna say I appreciate having Selena as a district mate, <laughs> as a librarian, because she's like, we both bring a very different angle. Like, I'm like sort of hands-on practitioner and you bring this like knowledge, uh, like she's always finding the studies and like the numbers. Yeah, and, yeah so it's really, it's helpful <laughs> and I appreciated that information. So um, uh, on a, I'm gonna give you a different mm -hmm. take here. I'm gonna talk a little bit about just at the beginning of the last year, we had state economists present to us sort of like a state of the economy. And what they showed us was throughout the United States history, the cycles of booms and busts and how we are in a boom right now and how Every boom is followed by a bust, and everything that is happening on the federal level is what you shouldn't do going into a bust. And so we may be facing one of the biggest financial crashes in our country's history, possibly worse than the Great Depression, based on those numbers. And it was a grim thing to hear. 
and shocking to see that that doesn't get more attention because people tend to like be like sort of in this bubble and in denial. Um, so I really think we need to look at how do we prepare Vermont for that future as well as taking into account that as climate change comes upon us, um, we're going to have to face some of our greatest challenges. Artificial intelligence is going to change the nature of the workplace. There's a lot of things coming. Um, I do have a specific solution, and it's to transition Vermont to what we call a zero waste economy. So I proposed a bill in the last session that I'm going to bring again um, in the next one. And, and, and what it does is it, it, we will study the state and look at every region and have um, engagement with different stakeholders like chambers of commerce and representatives of the business community, environmental protection groups, solid waste districts, and assess what are the strengths in every region and what are the what's the waste and where are the holes and how can we recruit businesses to come in or be built to fill those holes and use the local waste as source material. And if we could do this properly and strategically, we could create circular manufacturing around the state so we would create more economic vitality while eliminating the waste. And this would include things like carbon emissions, water pollution, as well as plastic, any kind of waste that's being produced. So I'm, I'm going to propose this idea again, hoping we can look at it, because if we think about the 30 to 50 year range, if Vermont can set the example for the country that the answer is to like sort of um, eliminate waste and change sort of the, the exploitive, extractive nature of our economic system, um, that we may create a more sustainable future. I would love for you to give me an example of that. That, that, that's a little, a little hard for me to grasp. So can, can, you, can, you, can you tell me something that might be something that is a, a waste, something that's I'll waste? I'll try to make that, it real simple. Yeah, that, that would be helpful. So like imagine that there's a small town and that they have uh, a, like a lumber industry. So you may, maybe what's there now is, a, is people logging and maybe it goes to a mill. Well, you know, maybe you try to have furniture being built in that town where the mill is instead of having it shipped across the state. Um, not that you wouldn't, but you could divert some there. And then maybe in the place where they're making the furniture, the wood that they don't use goes next door to a wood-burning plant. Or maybe before that, there's another manufacturing business, a place that could use the scraps for something. So the idea is that you site in, within a re an area a series of businesses that are using the waste products of one for the, the source of the next, and so at the end, you no longer have the waste. And it can, you can build on that. So another thing is like packaging or building things. Like we could say that nothing is allowed to be built in Vermont that you can throw out. It has to be reused in some way. So maybe businesses take stuff back and fix it or take stuff back and reuse it. So that's just like, I tried to make it really simple. But if you look up circular manufacturing online, there's a lot of information about this. Look up biomimicry, look at, which is you creating industrial processes that mimic nature because they're, they create less waste. Um, there's a lot of um, evidence out there around, um, and there are some examples of cities and countries around the world who have begun to look at this. It sounds almost like an old-fashioned notion. I mean, the idea that we had things all created in a town or in an area, right? I mean, before we sort of pulled everything apart, right? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it sounds sort of old-fashioned. It's actually to me. in alignment, I would say, with that sort of that old-fashioned Vermont or the you know old-fashioned Yankee ingenuity. Yeah. The idea yeah. of like you don't waste anything. You use every. And my grandparents were like that. They didn't. They used every part of an animal. They never. They didn't waste anything. My grandmother had like five washing machines going back to the 20s in her basement because they lived through the depression and they saw and I think w you know we should learn from that before it's too late but the reality is we're head I think we're heading towards a rough time we need to like sort of prepare ourselves wow that's really sobering 
Thank you for that. <laughs> I have to say, it is a little sobering. <laughs> but I guess, you know, you're right. I mean, booms and busts, that's, that's the way it, it is, right? I mean, the, we don't just keep going up and up and up at some point. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm, I'm glad that the two of you are out there, um, you know, addressing this for us, <laughs> because uh, it is, uh, it is pretty, pretty sobering. Um, we have just a couple of minutes. Are there any other topics you would just like to, you know, make a sort of a closing statement, if you like, or just tell us about something you're, you're thinking about for the, uh, for the next uh, biennium startup? <clears throat> or have we sort of covered? We've covered the big ones. I don't know if you, where we go from there, but. <clears throat> well, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. I think uh, I think looking um, at issues of equity in state are really important. That was I really appreciated that that was one of the potential things we were going to talk about. <laughs> um, we've and equity looks like a lot of things, um, but we've we I think we have some real work to do in the state around racial justice and even just acknowledging the. The depth of the racism um, in the state and the the challenges that people of color are facing here on a daily basis, and and um, you know we we both worked with Kaya Morris. She is my colleague on the Judiciary Committee, and it was just really heartbreaking um, to see just the hate that was directed at her and the stress that it put on her family, um, and and even more heartbreaking to see. The amount of doubt and questioning about whether that's possible here. Um, so that's been a really, I think, grim reminder of just how much work we have to do. But I think um, Kaya actually leaves a legacy of some really important work that she started on that issue, along with many others, including the idea of um, an ethnic studies curriculum in our schools that will start to really address issues of cultural competency um, in Vermonters from a very young age, looking at um, bias in our criminal justice system. Uh, I see that a lot in my work as a member of the Judiciary Committee. It's a very, very real and significant issue, and um, we've, we've done a lot of work to advance a fair and impartial policing. Um, policy in the state and we have a lot of work to to really have those policies be truly enacted so there's there's just at all level work to do there and I think it's really really important for us as Vermonters to be recognizing that today. Good. Brian do you want to add anything? Well I, I, what I would just say is that um, you know when when you're when you serve in the in the government you encounter a lot of people and you get a really wider view of society and even though we represent Burlington we're meeting people from all over the state and hearing from people all over the state and um, you know we are our our nation is at a, a crossroads where we could really heal from the com the conflict that we're going through as a society could drive us to a better place or it could all fall apart and um, what, what I think is really important right now is that we do our best to try to listen to each other, to talk with each other, and to be open to each other, and not to like push each other away, and not to shut each other down. Um, and some of the most transformative interactions I've had is when I someone attacks me in some way, and I reach out to them and try to like work through that with them. But that being said, we we can only tolerate so much. And when our colleague is being physically threatened or when people are being threatened for physical harm, I think there's a limit. And so I don't know what the solution is to this, but I'm very concerned about where our society is heading. 
um, if we continue to have sort of intolerance um, grow and uh, if, if we, it's kind of a paradox, if we tolerate, you know, we want to be tolerant, but are we going to tolerate people being abused? Are we going to tolerate the system sort of continuing oppression um, and continuing trauma, you know, continuing to traumatize people and oppress people? So. Uh, we, I still think we have a long way to go with this work, and there's a lot of policy decisions we can make that, would, that affect that, but in the end, I think what it really comes down to is the day-to-day -day interactions, and like, how are we treating each other on a day-to-day -day basis? How are we managing our conflicts? All right, food for thought, and thank you both for being in the legislature and, and, and doing this really, really important work. We, uh, we all appreciate it, and we're, we know that you'll both be back in, in January. Uh, and um, thanks so much for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. We hope you'll come in the future as well and let us know how, how these efforts are going. Um, and I want to tell everyone, don't forget to vote right now at City Hall. Vote early or vote on Election Day, Tuesday, November 6th. And of course, stay tuned to Channel 17 for more election coverage over the next few weeks. Thank you and good night.